for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle. As it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers uh, of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the tithes shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, just the scope of your word. How, Lord, we are studying something that happened hundreds, thousands of years ago. Yet still, your word speaks. So we thank you, Lord, that even in this ancient text about this ancient practice that we are reading about, that we can find modern context and modern relevance and your modern word to us as well. We thank you, Lord, that the ways you've been speaking are always the same, though they translate into every context and circumstance. So as we especially read about these ancient offerings and, and their value on giving all of this uh, to the temple, help us understand what that means for us, especially how we look at wealth and money. We thank you, God. We give you all the praise and glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. That the people of God made with God after they had de- rededicated their city and wanted to kind of found their um, new kind of society on the word of God. And we've been pausing on this chapter and not kind of rushing to the end because we're actually close to the end of Nehemiah. It's only a few more weeks until chapter 13, which is the end. But I've been wanting us to pause here because as we read through chapter 10, as we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, we see that the covenant that the people have made with um, God in this chapter really represents their praxis. It represents this very practical response that the people uh, kind of made in response to God's goodness and mercy. If you remember, uh, back in the, in the beginning of chapter 10, as they wanted to rededicate their city, they firstly wanted to have the scriptures read to them. They wanted to listen to the scriptures. So they listened for six hours straight 
just to the prophet Ezra reading the first five books of the Bible. And through that, they were convicted of their sin. They realized that they had wandered from God. But they were also drawn to joy in God's mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness. And then they were drawn to praxis. And so this kind of praxis we've seen throughout this covenant took place, firstly, by wanting to rededicate their lives and families to the one true God. If you remember the word syncretism, if you were here a few weeks ago, they had melded and kind of the religion of the one true God of Israel and other religions and other idols. And they wanted to stop that, especially in their families. And then last week we read about how another way of rededicating their lives to the one true God was rededicating the Sabbath. Remembering that they are created for a rhythm of life and we are created for it as well, of work and rest, of doing and being, of, of worshiping God and then working out in the world. And so this week then we see that the importance falls to money and wealth. Everything that Raph just read about in that passage has to do with money, has to do with wealth, it has to do with giving of themselves to God's work and especially to the work of God's temple and all that the temple does for the community. We read in verse 32 that the people declared, we assume the responsibility of carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. So that's the, the, the intro, the beginning of what they covenanted to do. And this has a real historical significance because when the people uh, of Israel were called out of slavery in Egypt and they were brought out by Moses, Moses commanded that each of them give a third of a shekel as kind of an atonement price that they were ransomed by God, they were given new life by God, and now this is kind of how they contribute to the community in the desert. But now the people are saying, we're going to do that every year. Not just once, we're going to do it every year. We're going to give this to the work of God. And so a third of a shekel would have been kind of about five, three to five percent of an average worker's yearly wage. A full shekel would have been one month's wage for an average worker. So they were saying, we will give 3 to 5% of our income to the work of the Lord through his temple. But then later in the passage, we read that the people say to God, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for they're like the pastors, the ancient pastors, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. Now the word tithe means 10%. So they were giving, wanted to give 10% of the crops that they had worked to kind of um, to make and to kind of to fruition. They were give 10% of those crops and other wealth to God. So adding those both together then, they covenanted to give 13 to 15% or more of their yearly income specifically for the maintenance of the temple and the work of God, which was kind of the main center of worship and community life in Jerusalem. And so we see that they kind of made this covenant to, which was kind of costly. This was a costly covenant for their lifestyle. But we see that they didn't have to do it. Before making this covenant with God, they did not live by that rule. We see that they didn't even take a day off from work. 
They valued work so much and making money and, and making their business grow that they didn't even take one day off. They wanted to keep the money rolling in. So for them, they weren't practicing this. So starting to do it was not something they felt they had to do. It was actually something they wanted to do. It was that response from sin and then joy and then praxis. They did it out of a desire to recommit their lives to God. And they knew if they did that, they would also need to recommit their money and their wealth to God. And they understood this by reading the scriptures. The Bible speaks about money 800 times. 800. That's many, many more times than some other hot button issues like sex. Money is spoken about all the time in the Bible. It is seen as one of the main indicators or the main portals to sin. It's one of the main ways people get off the path of following God. And that's what the people of Israel realized, that partly their pursuit of wealth had taken them off the path of following God's way. But it's also one of the indicators of what we believe. So the way you use money, the way you understand it and value it, is also going to show who you are. And we can see this very clearly in the world around us. You can see very clearly, I mean, we usually see this in you know, very wealthy people because they're the ones we actually see using their wealth in ways that we can actually see it. We can see exactly what they value by what they are purchasing, by what their lifestyle is, and what they use, kind of what they're spending on their lifestyle. So in the midst of this, as the people of Jerusalem were reading the scriptures, they realized these two things. They realized the Bible is telling them that we were led into sin partly by this, this quest for more. And also that showed the people around them that they didn't worship God, that they worshiped another God. It was an aspect of syncretism, a blending of uh, faiths and beliefs. So because of that, they wanted to return. And that's why this uh, section is so long. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the other two uh, passages that we studied from Nehemiah uh, last week and the week before were one verse long, all of one verse. And we could, you know, we had a whole sermon on one verse in those sermons. But this is like, this is a long section with a very detailed kind of uh, parts to it. I mean, they're saying, you know, give to this, 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 this. It's a, it's a huge list of different things that they're called to give their money and their wealth to. And when they're doing that, we can see they're not just doing it as an obligation. Okay, yeah, for God to love us, we got to do B, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But there's a deeper significance that's really for us as well. The deeper significance is that they tithe and we tithe to remember that God is the Lord of our wealth. That's why they tithe. And that's ultimately why we are called to tithe as well. You know, in churches... Uh, over the years, uh, Christians and churches have kind of settled on the tithe, 10%, as kind of the, the recommended way that we're called to give back to the, uh, to the blessing of the church and also to God's work in the world. The tithe is 10%, so that's kind of the recommended way. Some people cannot give a 10, 10%, so they give one or two or five, or, but 10% is kind of what churches have settled on. 
And if that's done just with a sense of obligation, there's no power to it. It's just another thing you do. Okay, I got to give money. That's what you do when you go to church. And it can even be done with a sense of suspicion. Like, what are they using the money for? Why, are they, why do they need all this money? What's happening? You know, it can be with that kind of sense of skepticism too. But still in the midst of it, we're called to give not because I need more money or the church needs more money, but out of a sense that we tithe to remember that God is the Lord of our wealth. Obviously, if there's abuse, and that's a reason why a lot of people don't tithe, because there's been abuses of it. You see churches using money in crazy ways that are totally non-biblical. So people go, I don't want to give my money to that. When I was a new Christian, I, was, I always wondered, like, why do, we, why do we do an offering? Every time in church, the people would come around, as we just did with the with the basket or with whatever it is, and, you, and I was wondering, why are they doing this? We're supposed to worship God here. What is, why, are we, why are they taking our money in the service? This seems just you know, kind of sketchy to me. But the one thing we see here that the people of Israel saw as well is that worship and the tithe are connected. Tithing in the scripture is elevated to worship. So that's why we do it most weeks. We tithe as part of worship because that is part of giving worth to God. We give worth to God every week through amazing worship like we have this week, through scripture reading, through prayer, but also offering is part of that as well. We give God worth not just through our songs, not just through our prayers, but also through our pocketbooks. And that's what the people of Israel understood in that moment And that's what we also see as we understand this passage from a new covenant context as well. That the way we use and understand our wealth is an aspect of what we believe. It is an aspect of worship. So as as we look at this passage today, we're going to look at the deeper practices around tithing in Nehemiah. These deeper practices that the people of Israel in, in Jerusalem were called to do as a way of deepening their faith and their understanding of God. And especially what I've been interested in this week, and it's come back to me several times, is about the connection between tithing and joy. Tithing and joy. You know, joy, as we've talked about in the past, is an appreciation of God's grace. That's what the Greek word for joy means. It doesn't mean I'm so happy. It means I appreciation of God's grace. So how can tithing be an outpouring of God's grace, and especially an appreciation of God's grace. I think for a lot of, for some of us actually in this room, you are joyful givers. Like you, you are, you tithe out of a deep sense of your identity in Christ. It is a deep conviction of yours. It is something you value. It is something that you kind of do as a blessing. But I know for a lot of us in this room, including myself often, Tithing is not a joy. You know, there's a lot of internal resistance to tithing. Whether it's guilt, whether it's fear, whether it's selfishness, whether it's skepticism, whether, whatever it is, there is a lot of internal resistance to it. And so that leads us just not to do it. So whether you're a joyful tither or whether you're struggling to be a joyful tither, for, there's a message in here for all of us. And it is about these deeper practices. And we can see a few of them here. We see the practice of faithfulness in tithing. 
the practice of responsibility and how tithing shows us about responsibility in our lives of faith, and also uh, generosity and gratitude in tithing. So we're going to look at these as we also grapple with what it means for us to see our money as uh, an aspect of who we believe in and who we are as believers. So firstly, we're going to look at faithfulness in tithing. We see in verse 39 that they, that they give kind of a summary of the whole section on money. And it is this, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. That really summarizes all of the verses we read today. It is everything in one sentence. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. And that was a value statement. It showed what they believed in. You know, and if, for those of you, uh, well, both in school and in business, I mean, often your businesses have value statements that say, this is what we're about, this is what we want, this is what we're doing. And this was their value statement. We're not going to neglect the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord which the temple was important to them, and they wanted to show its importance through their money. But as we can see, that was costly to them, as I just mentioned. They were called to give that 15% that I just said, but then there's this whole idea of firstborns in there. I don't, there was a whole section of it that Raph read. We shall give our first, firstborn of this and this and this and this and this and this, most of which, you know, we don't have, we're not, you know, we don't have crops and uh, livestock anymore. So that we could think that that doesn't apply to us. But the idea of firstborns is the first of, the best of something. And they didn't just give the firstborn of one thing. They gave the firstborn of everything. So if they had crops, they gave the firstborn of it. If they had, you know, uh, livestock, they gave the firstborn. If they had orchards, they gave the firstborn of every little thing. So then the tithe goes from like, 12% to 15 to up to 25 or whatever it is. So it was a costly endeavor for them. And it was costly because it was a new lifestyle for them. As I mentioned before, before they entered into this covenant, they didn't practice this. They were working for themselves. So they had a sense of entitlement. So all of what they had and excuse me for not having accurate things here. It's from Eben's uh, toy chest here. But, um, you know, they had crops uh, and livestock. So they had not dinosaurs but, and elephants. But uh, use your imagination. Big giant sheep and a huge cow. Um, <laughs> and other stuff like that. So they had all these things. A wolf, I don't think so, but still... Um, all of these things they would look at as theirs. This is their stuff. And if we had a modern context to this, you know, we would say, okay, well then we would add other possessions in there, giant cars, if you have one, and, and cool Jeeps. Um, and also things like, like our, maybe a boat you have. Um, but even things like your phone and your wallet, your credit cards, your cash. You know, these are all a part of like what our wealth is that we add to it. You know, and maybe a horny lizard. You might even have that too. I don't know. So all of this stuff, the Israelites thought was theirs. They had a sense of entitlement. I made it. 
I saved it. It's mine. But then they start reading the scriptures. And they read things like Psalm 24. That says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The world and all who dwell in it. So as they begin to read that, they realize, wait, actually, none of this is mine. All of this is God's. Everything in this pile is all God's stuff. It's not mine at all. I didn't own it. I didn't make it. Even their talents and their skills, all of that, none of it belonged to them because it's God's. God made you. God made every material that you use in, that you bought or sold. God made it all. Anything of value is his. So they realize then that, yeah, nothing. I don't even have the right to anything. All of that, all of that I have is just on loan from God. So then the idea of God saying, oh, just take 25%, just take, uh, I just want 15% or 20% was actually a blessing to them through faith. To be able to see that God just wanted some. He doesn't want all. He wanted all of this for me to enjoy, for the blessing of my family, for the blessing of others as well, and for the, the sustenance of family. He does not want all of it. And this is something that had a social context as well, because the tithe was proportionate to income. So for the poorest of the poor, who cannot give even anything, God just says, give what you can, proportionate to what you have. And for those who have more, he says, yeah, same with you. Give what you can, proportionate to what you have. So there's a sense of justice about this. But it all comes with faith, that believing that God owns what you have, that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything within it is God's. And so all of that then is given to you as a blessing for your thriving and for the world as well, and then for the church. I mean, it's interesting to think that God would care that, you know, this church keeps going, other churches keep going, that the doors keep open. But remember, the church is, is Christ's body. It is where Christ dwells. And the way that churches have worked, and even the way that it worked in the Old Testament, is that there were staff members that worked for the church. There were Levites and priests that the church supported. So, like, thinking of a pastor or other staff members, those are people that, from ancient times, were kind of set apart to be the teachers and the leaders and the ones who helped kind of keep the church running and growing like that. So, the community was called to take care of them. And also the ministries of the, the church. Keeping programs happening. Keeping ministries going. Keeping, you know, the doors open. Keeping blessings to the neighborhood going. All of those things we're called to be part of the community. And that's an aspect of faith, knowing that God has given me wealth, so God also wants me to use wealth, not just for my purposes, but for his as well. And that brings up the second aspect of um, what the deeper lessons that they learn, and that's responsibility. We see two times here that um, the people of God say, we assume responsibility for carrying out the commands of the Lord. It says two, two times. First, about the third of a shekel, and the second, about the firstborns. 
we assume responsibility. And they assumed responsibility because there's kind of a historical note here to understand. The temple at this time had actually been rebuilt before the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. So 80 years before, when the walls were still broken, uh, the king of Persia actually rebuilt the temple for the people. It was kind of the policy of the Persian Empire to rebuild worship sites of conquered peoples so that they could worship. It was just kind of one of the, the policies of that, uh, that empire. And so the temple was rebuilt, but at that time, the money from Persia had stopped coming. So the temple was in disrepair. It was getting broken down. There were, there were a few people who were upkeeping it, but everybody around them was, were using it, but not keeping it up. And so when they made this covenant, they said, we assume responsibility. Not just a few, not just a couple, but we assume responsibility to carry out the commands. And that's basically kind of what changed in the people of Israel. Since everyone benefited from the work of the temple, everybody had the responsibility to support it. Before that, they were fractured. Some said, oh no, the temple's great. Others said, I'm not doing that. We see that we've seen that all throughout Nehemiah, this sense of division. But when they made this covenant, they were together. They said, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. We will assume responsibility. And that kind of speaks to kind of the larger message, really, that we get here. Is that as we're a part of the body, they were a part of the body of the temple, we have been given the body of Christ, we are also challenged as we worship together, as we grow together, also to take responsibility, to see ourselves at a vital link in the chain. You know, in Paul's message on, on the body, it's such a beautiful message because everybody can be included in the body. It's not just one person who can run the body. Just because I'm the voice of the body or one of the voices doesn't mean I am the brain of the body or even the hands of the body. All of us have a place in the body. And that's the blessing of it. I mean, and I know probably a lot of you are going, well, I don't know my place. Am I a fingernail? Am I a toe? I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And that's okay, but in the midst of it, at least understanding that you are a part of this body. That you are essential to this body working in the way God wants it to in Jesus Christ. You know, in, in our membership class, we're in the middle of uh, membership and baptism classes. Last week, uh, I was telling them an analogy about membership. And if you've been in membership classes before, you've heard me say this. But it's kind of the difference between dating and kind of getting uh, serious in a relationship. So when you're going to church and you're just kind of checking out a new church, you're kind of like dating the church. You're just kind of going, yeah, it's kind of low commitment, you know. Just check it out, see if we're compatible, and I'm just going to, you know, just, just check it out for a while. And some people end up dating a long time, right? As we know, there are relationships that you, friends that you know that have been dating for years, and they still have that mindset of like, ah, I can get out of it if it's what I want to. You know, I'm just checking it out, just going to see. But there comes a point where you need to make a greater commitment and say, you know, no, I'm in this relationship, <laughs> I'm going to be there. I'm going to make the other person, she can, or he can trust me because I'm in it. I'm committed to it. And that's the, just the, uh, the idea of membership in churches. 
is just about going, you know what, as long as I'm here, as long as God has me here and calls me here, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to commit so that you can trust me and I can trust you. I'm going to commit so that you know I'm for God's work. I'm going to commit to make things better. Like when you're dating a church, you don't really have a lot of investment in making it better because, you know, you're dating it. So if you don't like it, you just go date someone else. Go date another church. But if, you get, if you're invested in it, then you need to go, okay, I'm here. I'm here to, if we're, not, if we're going off the path of where God's leading us, I'm going to help us get back there. If we are not kind of, if I feel like we're, we're not connecting with the needs or connecting with, with God in certain ways, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be a, a part of the change. I'm going to talk to my leaders. I'm going to pray for it myself. I'm going to seek God, and I'm going to seek to be a person that is trustworthy and godly so that I can hear what God's doing as well with the community. So all of those things come when you say, I'm taking the step. I'm not going to date anymore. I'm going to be committed. And that's kind of what the people of Jerusalem had found out at that moment. They said, no, we're, we're assuming responsibility. And we're writing, this, we're writing this letter down to God, the God of the universe. We're going to all sign it. We're going to put it in the temple so that everybody can kind of keep us accountable to it. That this is what we are doing. You know, in our um, volunteer appreciation uh, night last night, I was just so encouraged by so many people who have done exactly what I'm talking about. Just hearing testimonies of different people uh, uh, we appreciate and people sharing about the, the different things that they appreciate about leaders and ministries. I was just reminded that so many people in this church have taken responsibility. That, I mean, you know, in any church you have people all over the spectrum. People who are dating, people who are uh, making commitment, people who are committed. That's just part of it. So if you're not in there, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a word of judgment. But I just really appreciated those who have taken up that responsibility for this church, who said, I'm standing in the gap. I'm going to step in. And it's just such a blessing. I just hope you can just realize how big of a blessing that is to me and others, that you are fulfilling that calling. Because it's not a calling to Newtown. It's not a calling to me, of all people. It's not a calling even to each other. It's a call to God. And that's, I think, where we begin to change our understanding of ministry and commitment. It's saying, I'm committed to God. This church is always going to be uh, a collection of broken sinners, and every church will be that because that's what the church is. Until Christ comes again and we are redeemed, we will be this collection of broken sinners, and every church you go to will be a collection of broken sinners. But when we come to uh, church together, when we assume responsibility, we are saying, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm going to be a part of it, but I'm going to look beyond us to Jesus, and I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to try to hold on to him, and we're going to do that together. And that's when the church thrives, when we just together can be down on our knees and just worshiping Jesus, and then looking together in the light of Christ, in the grace of Christ looking at each other in the grace of Christ, forgiving each other, putting up with each other, loving each other, caring for each other, not out of our own strength or even because the other deserves it, but because of Christ. In the grace and mercy of Christ. And so that's as we take responsibility. That's how we 
begin to see our money, but also begin to see our community. And that leads us, I think, to gratitude. That's what we see happened in the life of Israel. In verse 33, when Raph read it, there was this long list of different things that they were giving their wealth towards, uh, to the new moon festivals, to the, uh, the Sabbath day, to uh, all of the offerings, guilt and um, sin and atonement offerings, all this long list. And most of that doesn't mean anything to us because we don't do those things anymore. But all of those had a sense of gratitude to them. In each one of the things described, if you look back at, um, and I didn't put it on our slide because there's just, it's just a long verse, couldn't fit it in. But in all of those things, you see a sense of gratitude. In every single uh, festival or time that, that uh, they were covenanting to, those were times where they remembered God's goodness. The Sabbath. Those um, festivals were times where they remembered God's power. The atonement um, and the sacrifices where they remembered God's mercy and received God's mercy. So those were all times in the church where they were actually called to remember gratitude. So to see the tithe as as an aspect of gratitude is not something we often do. But I encourage you to think of it as gratitude because gratitude then begets generosity. Generosity and gratitude are connected with each other. If you are generous without gratitude, your generosity will often have strings to it. Like, you know that kind of generosity. Someone gives you something, but you know you're going to have to give them something back. And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. The kind of generosity that comes from God, though, through Jesus Christ, is a no-strings-attached generosity. It is grace, one-way love, an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. So always, when we see this idea of tithing, any of these, really any of kind of the... um, commands in the Christian life, we're to see them as an aspect of gratitude that leads to generosity. And this is really kind of how Jesus saw it. In Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus' teachings always move beyond the tithe. They always lead us beyond the tithe to generosity. You know, we read in Luke 3.11, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. You as food do likewise. So that's not 10% or even 20%, that's 50%. And then Jesus says, If you will have treasure in heaven, go sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and follow me. Again, not 10 or even 50, but 100. is God's. And Jesus is doing this to lead us beyond the tithe to generosity. To this idea that we are called to live lives of generosity as Christians. That if we've been saved by God, then we have something to give. And an aspect of generosity then is just simply seeing how generosity works with our wealth. Uh, Richard Foster, who's a famous writer in the Christian life about Christian disciplines, he writes it this way. He says, Perhaps the tithe can be a beginning way to acknowledge God as the owner of all things, but it is only a beginning and not 
the ending. So if tithing is done out of legalism or obligation, it just will have no power to it. You know, Randy Alcorn, who's a writer on finances, often says, sometimes we can give 10% so we don't have to give the other 90% to God. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that out of generosity can come 1%, 5%, 10%, 20 50 100 And I think that's the question we just are, are compelled to ask in this kind of a, a sermon and with these passages is, what does generosity mean to us? And what can we do with generosity? Because for some of us, we don't have a lot of resources. We don't, may not have any resources because our parents have the resources. So out of that, we see we can give time to God's work. We can give uh, prayer to God's work. You know, in the passage, there's this whole section on wood offerings. And this was very interesting because the poorest of the poor could not give money. So God, uh, or so the people gave in this passage a way for the poorest of the poor to give a tithe. They would go out and search for wood. And in a desert where Jerusalem is, wood was not easy to come by. You know, the temple needed wood for the sacrifices because there was, you know, burn, the, the sacrifices were burnt up. So to tithe, to give generosity to God, they could just go and, and get wood. It might take two, three hours, four hours. That was a way that they could tithe, give of their wealth, which was their time. So it doesn't mean just 10%. It means what is generosity to you? You know, when you think um, of the scriptures, Jesus says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And the, the good beginning place is, where is your treasure? And so we come from generosity back to gratitude, because we're grateful for our treasures. We're, we're extremely happy for them. And when we think about what is our treasure, that's then the beginning part of going into generosity. You never start with generosity if you just say, okay, I'm going to give more and you're not grateful, it'll just become another thing you do. Go back to what your treasure is. And ultimately, your treasure is Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus died for us. Jesus lived your life and died your death. He submitted to terrible, terrible torture and excruciating loss. He went to hell for you on so many levels. Why? Because you are his treasure. You are God's treasure. Every other treasure will insist you die for it, but Jesus died to purchase you. And so out of that then, we know that we are treasured by God. That can lead us to take just one step of generosity to others and one step of generosity to God's church. So I encourage you out of this uh, challenging message just to think about what is your treasure remember that you are God's treasure you are his dearly beloved if you are a Christian he has saved you and given new life in him he has given you a status as a child of God you are a member of his kingdom you are an ambassador of his mercy if you are not yet a Christian you are loved by God and he wants you to know him he wants you to have new life in him now and out of that, then the question is, how can I respond to him? And especially, how can I respond to him with my wealth, whatever it is? How can I show my gratitude and love for him 
by doing as he commands and showing his lordship through my wealth. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we know that a tithe for us may mean 1%. It may mean 5%. It may mean 20%. It may mean 50%. It may even mean 100%. Lord God, as, as you work in our hearts to think about this challenging subject, Lord, would you just help us understand what that means to us? If it's 0% now, it may just mean 1%. It may mean just taking one step in being generous and especially thinking about the tithe, thinking about giving back to God's church and his work. And it might mean for some of us going from 10 to 20 or 20 to 40 or whatever it might mean. But Lord, we trust that you are the Lord of our money. You're the Lord of our wealth. You're the Lord of our time. All, all that we have that is wealth, whether it is material possessions, whether it is um, our time and our talents, we know that you are Lord of them all. Thank you, Lord, that we are your treasure, that our treasure is in you and your treasuring of us. Help us to be faithful and responsible because of it. Thank you, God. In your son's name we pray.